From WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. In the late 1970s and early 80s, punk rock was on the rise. The New York City alternative music scene was in full swing. And two young videographers were recording punk rock bands that at the time were just minutes away from fame. The scene was grounded in New York's iconic nightclubs, CBGB, Danceteria, The Mud Club, and it birthed a generation of musicians. Even more mainstream artists played the Manhattan Danceteria before they went global, Iggy Pop, Madonna, Billy Idol, Cyndi Lauper. The era was also marked by sexual liberation, subcultures gaining broader platforms, and traditionally marginalized people finding community. And what a community it was. Lots of sex, experimentation with art, music, drugs, sex, did I say that? And establishment concepts against a backdrop of cheap New York City rent. Our two videographers who lugged around heavy video cameras and lighting equipment remarkably were women. In the late 70s and 80s, men were typically behind the camera handling lighting and editing video, but Emily Armstrong and Pat Ivers had taken control of their medium. In Amelia, a culture that was male-dominated, aggressive, sometimes even violent. But as we'll hear today, that was the performative part of this community. Rather than violence, Pat and Emily found excitement and inspiration, yes, but also support, care, and acceptance. That community started to fray, though, when the AIDS epidemic hit. The New York Times has called them the Lewis and Clark of rock video. Spin Magazine writes, Lucky for us, two women put in the work and captured some of the all-time greatest rock acts in their prime. Their video archives are now housed in New York University's Fales Library. They join me now via Zoom. Emily Armstrong, Pat Ivers, welcome to Coastline. Hey, hi. Thanks Thanks for having us. It's great to have both of you with us. And now what do punk rock video archivists from New York have to do with the Cape Fear region? Well, a local graduate student in the film studies department at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, Rachel Pittman, is also an instructor where she teaches the history of 1980s moving image media. She joins me now in the studio. Rachel Pittman, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Emily and Pat, let's start first with the significance of this music for you. Why were you drawn to this scene in the first place? Well, it was about two blocks from my house, which was a real plus. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we were just real. Music was so terrible in the mid-70s. I mean, it was bands like Kansas and, and, you know, overblown stadium rock. And if you had, you know, we in our younger days in high school, you know, I could go see the Rolling Stones in not super big stadiums. Uh, you know, just you could see great live music. And that seemed to have gone away for me. So when CBGB's open and I started going there, I was seeing incredible live music and a totally different sound. And I was completely swept up by it. 
And what were you doing for work at the time, Pat? Oh, Emily and I were both working at the same place. We were working at the public access department of Manhattan Cable Television. And uh, that's that's where we had access to equipment. Emily, why don't you explain uh, what we used to do? Well, this was one of the first cable TV channels. Cable was brand new in America at the time. And they required the cable company to have something called public access so people could use these channels. They purchased at that time the brand new portable video equipment that had just come out, Portapacks they were called. It was videotape. They were not even in cassettes or anything. So Pat worked in production and we uh, would get like the community people in and train them, Boy Scouts, churches, all kinds of people to use the video equipment to make their programs. And at night when we left work, we had the keys to the building and a sympathetic uh, group of people who ran the transmission at night. So we would just sneak the equipment out. We take it to CB's, shoot bands, and then pack it up at like three o'clock in the morning, bring it back to Manhattan Cable. And then we would go back to work the next day. You know, when you're young, you have a lot of stamina. <laughs> For those who who really don't know the punk band scene or that genre and might be doing well to identify the dead Kennedys or Sex Pistols and that's about it. Right. Help us understand what this genre is and how it emerged. And But before we do that, let's just play a little clip from the band Bad Brains and then... That was the punk band Bad Brains recorded by Emily Armstrong and Pat Ivers. Do you know what year that would have been? Early 80s? 1980. 1980. Okay, now there are going to be people listening because we also have a strong classical music audience (laughs) who are going to hear that and go, ah, (laughs) make it stop. Now help us, what what were we hearing in that? What do you hear when you hear that? I think we hear one of the many different kinds of music that you would hear if you went to CBGB's. It wasn't, you know, the punk rock label encompassed rockabilly, punk, you know, uh, jazz type bands like the Lange Lizards, No Wave, and there were even performance artists and poets and people like that. So Dead Boys, classic punk, Ramones, classic punk, Patti Smith. But the Bad Brains were just one of the many different kinds of sounds you could hear there. Tilly Crystal, who ran CBGBs, his only rule was play whatever you want, but don't play cover music. You have to write your own songs and perform your own songs. So Everyone, everyone played original music, and the, the range of music was huge. Yeah. I mean, the first time that I shot at CBGB's was in 1975, and it was the Unrecorded Band Festival. And the first night that I played, that I shot the bands, it was Talking Heads, Blondie, and uh, a band called The Heartbreakers that had uh, Richard Hell and uh, members of, of, of television. Um, it was, uh, sorry, the New York Dolls. And so it was, uh, the music was far more diverse than what you just heard, which was all, uh, sort of 
that they were the, the sons of the sex pistols, which were and they were English and they pretty much played one kind of music, which is this very hardcore, very fast, uh, kind of strident and often very political punk music. But American punk was actually different and more diverse, more melodic, more experimental. Rachel Pittman, you are working on your master thesis at UNCW. You're also an instructor in the film studies department. When you happened upon the work of Emily Armstrong and Pat Ivers, what struck you as extraordinary about it and, and significant, and why are you including this? Um, I think that first I was struck by the size of um, Emily and Pat's archive. Mm -hmm. So when I read about um, their archive at Fales Library and I did some research into it, I was um, I was struck by how many hours of footage there there was in the archive. Um, I also was struck by these two women videographers who seem to be punks themselves. Um, documenting their own subculture in a sense. It seemed interesting um, to me and it seemed to speak to the portability and the accessibility of videotape as a medium. Um, something, sometimes I feel that videotape speaks to um, the iPhone today, like it, it was more portable than maybe some cameras that, or some mediums that came before it. So I think that when I encountered Emily and Pat's story and their archive and their work, I was inspired by um, the fact that they had worked so hard and so diligently and so meticulously to document something that was ephemeral and um, not often looked at as well documented. I think that sometimes punk can be seen as a, a, brief, a brief flash in the pan um, or something that's dead now and so we don't have great records of it but Emily and Pat I think prove the contrary is true yeah and that is an interesting element of this genre is sort of how how short this era was and and perhaps that perhaps other musical genres have uh, comparable lifetimes I don't know but um, Emily Armstrong what were some of the factors that contributed to this sort of fleeting kind of moment? Well, New York City was in a very bad financial state. And I think there was access to very, very cheap apartments. My first apartment was $66 a month and I had a roommate. Um, so bands could come, they could rent cheap lofts, they could practice. And the economy kind of, I think a bad economy often produces great arts. And that's really what happened. So at CB's, it was a real DIY kind of place, do it yourself. And you, if people, everybody did something. I mean, you could be a musician, you could be a videographer like Pat and I, although there were not very many of us. You could be a filmmaker, you could be a, put out a fanzine, and a lot of fashion came out of it, a lot of poetry. And, and it was a very, it was a very fertile, creative sort of world, small world. And it created a lot of great artists, you know, people like, you know, Keith Herring and um, David Wanarovich, Zoe Leonard. They came all out of that scene, really. I think it had a lot to do with the economy. You know, there was not a lot of pressure to um, have a really high paying job because they didn't exist. 
You're listening to Coastline. Videographers Emily Armstrong and Pat Ivers are with us, along with UNCW Film Studies instructor Rachel Pittman. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Stay with us. Listening to Coastline, I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. In the late 1970s and early 80s, punk rock was having its first real moment. Clubs like CBGB, Danceteria, and the Mud Club were the gathering places and performance spaces for the artists. And Emily Armstrong and Pat Ivers were lugging around heavy video cameras, lighting equipment, and other gear to capture what nobody understood at the time would be a rather fleeting era. Rachel Pittman, a UNCW instructor and film image historian, brought them to the university to do a presentation in November of 2022 on this largely unstudied and unrecognized significance of video, the era, and the community. And just before we went to break, Emily Armstrong, you were talking about uh, the bad economy and how that was contributing to the art that was coming out during that time in the early 1980s. What were some of the other kind of uh, psychological dynamics happening in the community among young people who were making art that sort of contributed to that sense of, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'll let you finish that. (laughs) Well, Pat and I talk about CBGB's high school in a way. And a lot of CBGBs were people who kind of were misfits in their own communities, their high schools they grew up in, and they came to CBGBs and had a second chance to recreate themselves or actually maybe be the person they thought they were when they were younger that they couldn't. So that was an amazing kind of feature about CBGBs. And there was a lot of different, you know, kind of groups who did different things, you know, the no wave crowd and the more punk crowd. So it was a very small community, but it had its little sort of... um, kind of clicks in a way, you know, or, or subgroups in it. And people just really love the music and they love the scene and they love the style. And it, it, I think it had a pretty big impact on culture that followed afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I think there was uh, a feeling of, it's weird, like a feeling of, uh, of hope that you could do whatever you want, but it also a feeling of, there's, there's, we, we don't have anything. We have nothing. So we can create something. Uh, because Again, because there, there literally was, nobody had any money. Uh, but we had each other. And, and you know, you could go to the bar and, and someone would show you their sketchbook or, you know, a poem they were working on or uh, some fashion they were designing. And that was an incredibly uh, positive experience for people. And that sort of cross-fertilization. I mean, I worked, when I was working at, uh, at Manhattan Cable, I also used to freelance at a video art facility where I would edit uh, video artists like Namjoon Pike and, uh, you know, Bill Viola, Juan Downey. So we were all in it together even if 
uh, Nam June didn't especially come to CBGB's. No. He was a famous video artist. Uh, he knew about he knew about it, and he knew he knew that we went there, and he thought it was amusing. So there was this great cross fertilization going on downtown. That in spite of the fact that everybody was broke, we had this sort of hope for ourselves and our art. Rachel Pittman, you talk and you draw parallels between the feeling that people lived with during that time of the sense of the Cold War could lead to annihilation at any moment to some of the factors today. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, I've done a lot of research, I guess, on nightclubs during this um, moment because that's the topic of my master's thesis. And I read um, a quote from someone named Ann Magnuson who organized a lot with a club called Club 57. Um, and she said something to the effect of, we felt like we were dancing while at any moment, um, you know, nuclear warfare could take place because of the Cold War. But I think also some of what Emily and Pat are mentioning about um, the economy being so bad or maybe young people not having um, money or like material goods, as a young person right now, um, post-COVID or during COVID, um, and also someone who came of age um, and entered adulthood during the Trump presidency, I think that my generation, um, or at least me, um, I feel this sort of, um, I guess, tension about the future, um, while at the same time, it feels like um, the stakes are really low in a way, similar to what Emily and Pat are saying. I think we've all seen headlines or stories about millennials and now Gen Zs not having um, the same financial opportunity as previous generations. And so I myself feel that sort of um, paradox of not having anything materially and being a broke grad student and also feeling like I can do anything in a way. Um, so what Emily and Pat are talking about about this moment speaks to me, I think, um, personally where I am right now. Um, I also think I'm a little bit jealous of all of the great artwork that came out of their um, scene. Uh, yeah. And all of you have mentioned this DIY nature of the era and of the art at the time. So most people understand DIY stands for do-it-yourself, but what does that mean in the context of what you were doing, Emily Armstrong? Well, we had very little money, so in order to get videotapes to record on, we would beg, steal, and borrow from people we knew that worked at the network. We would record over things. And we found a way to be able to get equipment and also to have the videotapes to record it on. And people at CBGB's that wanted to have a magazine about the scene, they made their own magazine. You know, they stapled it together and they called it Tuesday night. And every Tuesday night, you could go to CBGB's and this gal, Anya Phillips, would come in and hand you a copy of her, her magazine. And it wasn't it was even- all like, It was all you know, It wasn't even like a zine. It was really like, it had columns, it had articles, photographs, and there was a number of other people that did those kinds of magazines too. So, I mean, Anne coming from Studio 54, uh, 54 
Studio 50, Club 57, they had like fashion was their thing. I mean, they had, they made themselves the most amazing outfits and repurposed things that they bought at thrift stores and stuff. So we were all very creative with the few resources that we had. Pat Ivers, given that you were women and it was really unusual for women to be behind the camera and, oh, wait a minute, that's still true today. But <laughs> but back then, what? how did you find the audacity to do what you were doing? Did you ever, I mean, did it you ever know, occur to you that you... You know, I think my mother always instilled in me the idea that I could do anything I wanted. So it just didn't occur to me. I just thought, well, you know, that's something I want to do. I I had no musical talents, so I couldn't really play guitar or or sing, really. Although I probably could have, but I I didn't think I could. So this was the one thing that I could contribute to uh, the CBGB scene uh, was was my video talents. So, you know, that's, that's why I started doing that. And, you know, like I said, I met Emily, um, at, at uh, Manhattan Cable. And I had originally started working with a bunch of guys. And after about a year, uh, they said, you're crazy. We're not making any money at this. And uh, in 1977, I met Emily and I said, let's do this. Let's go. She, I took her to see Patti Smith and she was uh, converted. And so <laughs> we started, we became a team and started uh, documenting the scene. What did you expect? So it was from seventy-seven to eighty. Yeah, and and what did you expect was going to happen with this work? So the guys were out because they weren't making any money. But Emily Armstrong, where did you envision this going? What was it for? Well, I knew it was important. I think Pat had really more of a vision of the real importance of it. I just loved live music so much for the opportunity to go out night after night and see bands and record it and play them over again in my apartment if I wanted to. That was like a dream thing, a dream job for me. Um, we never made any money, ever. I mean, all we did was spend money and and, and, and beg favors of people and, and lug things around by ourselves at night. I mean, the size of the equipment that we used to drag around as like skinny little punk girls was really pretty amazing. But it ended up being a, a, a time, a time period. I was a sociology major in college, so I'm so interested in culture and impact and and people's behaviors and stuff. And I can see that this like analog art form, you know, where there was no computers and nothing was on a hard drive or anything. And if we made posters for a show we were having, because we did video shows, we had to print them out and mix up a bucket of paste and go out with a brush in the middle of the night and put them on telephone poles and hope we didn't get caught by the cops. You know, so uh, it it was just a, a very important thing to do your own publicity too that was a big part of it people did their own promotion of all these events and parties and stuff we mailed postcards to people i think i always say it was like the last analog art form and then everything after that really went digital and things became to me way more ephemeral and easily you know erased and hard drives crashing and stuff like that where we have a huge ephemera collection from that time period and it's it's i have it upstairs you know what i mean nyu has copies of it in the archive so it was everything was analog and you could touch it you could hold it up and look at it and it was a really different time the medium was very different 
And for those who are just joining us, you're listening to Coastline. We're talking with two videographers, Pat Ivers and Emily Armstrong, who recorded on videotape punk rock bands in the late 70s and early 80s. This archival material is now housed in the Fales Library at New York University. Also with us today is Rachel Pittman, who is a film studies scholar and historian and graduate student at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Rachel Pittman, we have talked about the male gaze through the camera lens and how that translates and and what kinds of images we see as a result of perhaps a straight cisgender man being behind the camera. How are the images different or are they different the images captured by Pat Ivers and Emily Armstrong back in the in the early 80s as compared to what might have been captured by men? Um, I'm not sure how Emily and Pat's images differ from, um, you know, video that might have been captured by men at the time. I think that it's clear to me, at least as an outsider viewing this footage, that Emily and Pat were very much a part of the subculture that they were documenting. Um, There's this closeness to the footage, both in proximity clearly of their camera to the stage, um, but also in the access that Emily and Pat were able to get to this incredible range of bands. Um, there's There's a closeness there that's indicated by their archive, a closeness to their material. Um, in terms of your question and the male gaze, I think in the 1980s, if we're looking at American moving image media more widely, particularly Hollywood, the male gaze becomes a really big conversation. Um, in the 1970s, we have Lara Mulvey's essay, um, that sort of popularizes the term, the male gaze. And so in the 1980s, we get all of these conversations about slasher movies, which were really popular in the 80s, or teen sex comedies like Porky's that were really popular in the 1980s, um, and how the male gaze interacts with um, the camera and with the subjects in front of the camera in these films. I think Emily and Pat's footage falls entirely outside of these conversations in a way because of the DIY and underground production contexts of the footage. So um, Emily and Pat, as they've said, were hauling around these porta packs and getting all of their own footage and doing all of this themselves. Um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Pat, but I think you edit all of the footage as well or have edited all of your um, you know, shows. So there's this DIY approach that differs from that Hollywood male gaze uh, kind of fiasco that we talk about a lot when we talk about the 1980s and moving image media. So in a way, to me, Emily and Pat's footage presents a different side of moving image in the 1980s, something underground, um, something punk. Pat Ivers, when you, when you hear Rachel talk about your footage as having this characteristic of closeness, is that something that you saw? I mean, like she's saying that that you guys were insiders, and so you were almost, even though you were behind the camera, are are you able to objectively look at your footage and observe things like that? I, you know, I would be uh, honest to God, a foot, two feet away from the performers, 
And uh, I was literally on top of them. And I probably couldn't have gotten that access if people didn't trust me. So, uh, you know, did I fall in love with people? I mean, I can tell <laughs> when I look at my own footage, I know who I was like infatuated with that night, you know? Uh, so th there was, there was a female gaze going on, believe me. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you sort of referenced it before it was, uh, you know, Gen Z didn't invent fluid sexuality. I mean, there was so much of that going on at CBGB's and Dan's and Furia, but I'd say the one difference is people didn't talk about it incessantly. People just did it. And then they moved on with their lives. So there was, uh, you know, tremendous amount of, of sexual experimentation, people sleeping with uh, their genders, you know, opposite gender. I mean, it was, it was a very fluid thing, but it wasn't the uh, number one topic of conversation. Uh, and, and people weren't labeling it. They were simply doing it. Um, but, you know, go ahead. There was no media attention to it also. True. So th th there was very little media coverage of the punk scene. The New York punks, unlike the California, the uh, English punks who really embraced the media and public publicity and stuff like the Sex Pistols did. There I was one night at CBGB's and ABC came in. They were going to do like a five minute thing on punk. And they walked in with their cameras and the whole club emptied out. People just left. I mean, there was a really like anti we did our own promotion. You know, we had the Village Voice, we had, you know, Soho News, we had the East Village Eye, you know, towards the, you know, like, so more like the early, late 70s, early 80s. So there were some outlets for us. But I think because there was so little media attention on the scene, it never got like this, like distilled down to some silly little, you know, soundbite and then sent out to like the whole world the way things do today. That's so interesting. Uh, you didn't need to talk about it. Why do you think, why, why was this a period of more sexual experimentation and, and more sexual liberation? I mean, I thought, we know about the 1960s, free love and, you know, that, that whole train. But this was something that was different, right? Well, I think there was... Uh a lot more uh, fluidity, which uh, the 60s, you know, for all the free love, I remember reading uh, an article by, it was like William Sapphire or someone, some Republican, and uh, saying that the only winner of free love were uh, white men, older white men, because they got to have sex with young girls. And at the time I said, hey, you know what? He's got a point there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, when it came to our, our group, uh, you know, we were, you know, whatever struck your fancy that night, you know, it was, it was a very, you know, whatever makes you happy kind of scene. Um, and, and actually, you know, when, once we got to Danceteria, uh, there was, uh, a lot more, oh, I guess it was dance period and club 57 were, uh, much more sort of out there, uh, gay friendly, uh, CBGB's was always gay friendly, but nobody talked about it. It simply was existing. 
but it became much more of a thing uh, at Danceteria and uh, Club 57, probably for the best. I mean, I think so. Um, but uh, that's that's where we met Kate Perry. And you're listening to Coastline Video Archivist Emily Armstrong and Pat Ivers, as well as Moving Image Media Scholar Rachel Pittman are with us today. When we come back from this short break, we'll have a look at how much has changed among video and film creators since the 1980s. And we'll also hear more about the video lounge in Danceteria. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. In the early 1980s, Pat Ivers and Emily Armstrong banded together to shoot video of up-and-coming punk bands playing CBGB, Danceteria, and other iconic New York City nightclubs. They're aptly described as renegades for a few reasons. They were women dragging around heavy gear and handling the technology usually used by men. They were recording a musical genre that was also male-dominated and which, on the face of it, could sometimes sound aggressive with violent imagery. They are with me today, along with UNCW graduate student, instructor, and film scholar Rachel Pittman. Now, just before we went to break, we were talking about the feeling of uh, sexual liberation among folks in your community, that artistic New York City community at the time. And you were talking about how there wasn't a lot of talking about the experimentation and fluidity in terms of sexuality and gender. And Pat Ivers, you said that the first, was this the first trans musical star who emerged? in Yeah, this? there was uh, this, this great woman named Jane County. And uh, she was originally Wayne County. And, and she had a band. Well, back then, he had a band. And then um, she transitioned to Jane County, and she continued to play forever. She's a, she's a, an accomplished painter now, uh, but uh, yeah. So she was, a, a, I think, the first transgender star, at least in our uh, world. Uh, and, yeah. and it was no big, you know. People just went from calling her Wayne to calling her Jane. And Emily Armstrong, why why is that? You have some thoughts about why your community at the time was just so accepting of something that is talked to death today in a very public way. Why, why was it just accepted back then and not talked about so much? Well, talked about outside of the scene because no one knew about it because there was no media promoting this punk scene or these artists and people that came out of it. You know, people did the things we spoke about before, like they made their own newspapers and you know, towards the end of it, there was the Soho News and the East Village Eye, but they had a tiny, tiny, you know, circulation. I think today there's so much other media accessible. There's, you know, Instagram, Facebook, you know, you know the list, Twitter. So one person can say one thing and it gets, you know, covered and, you know, retweeted by a million other people. So it was nothing like that for us. And like the, unlike the English bands, there was not a big, um, effort to get a lot of publicity, which probably was to the detriment of some of these bands, because a lot of them could have been the world's greatest bands, and they did not become super famous. 
you know yeah so that's um that could have been because of their not not being that interested in getting like uh, publicity i mean their songs were not played on the radio you know i mean few of them even had records when when the dolls uh, when the heartbreakers went to england there was more publicity about them in england than there had been in the united states everybody knew about them their shows were sold out they could hardly believe it was happening now you are the creators of something called the video lounge at danceteria there are a few incarnations of danceteria there are a few locations but this was the very first one you invented it so what what is the video lounge emily armstrong well, we were hired to do the opening night at this new club, Danceteria, by the two guys that started it, Jim and Rudolph. So we had this idea to do a lounge. We have our own floor, and we would play on TV sets and do these like sort of like areas, like little corners and sections of the room that would look like you know the family rec room, the feeling of being in your family rec room. We rented like old-fashioned TVs and bought like a whole pile of like really messed up furniture at Salvation Army. And we put together this video lounge couches and we had a good speaker system, we had our own bar. So we had our own section in the Anceteria and we played things from our archive and a ton of sound footage we had, uh, all kinds of things, commercials, trailers, cartoons, you know, old, you know, European movie segments and things. And it was a massive hit and the club kept it on as a permanent feature of the club. It was very intimate. It was very different from a nightclub where you would kind of stand, people would sit. And, you know, if you were four people on a couch, they'd be like sitting close with each other and their bodies would be touching in a very un-nightclub-like way to be. And it was a very popular place. People loved to just sit there all night. When the bands were on, Pat videotaped them downstairs and the video was piped up to the video lounge. So people could sit and watch on these seven different TV sets. They could watch the band downstairs. And they didn't even have to go down to the crowded, sweaty dance floor to uh, see the music. Yeah, I mean, the other thing that was amazing is it's hard to remember a time when there was only three channels right. and there was no possibility that you would have seen your local band on TV. Just impossible. So this was, it, it sort of predated YouTube. Uh, and that had simply not existed. So the idea of having this uh, weird footage in a setting that reminded you of your family's house was that was the tension we were looking for, and people loved it. Rachel Pittman, from a from a scholarly point of view, why do you think it took a while for NYU to catch on to the value? Of, of this archive. I mean, wh why is this kind of an unstudied up till relatively recently genre? Well, I, I don't want to supply like a too simple answer, I guess, to your question. I think that um, NYU, I'm really glad that NYU discovered Emily and Pat's footage and now it lives, you know, forever in this sort of institutionalized space where scholars like myself can study it. I think that in general, American punk, or particularly this specific New York scene um, from the late 70s and early 1980s, is not studied as much as some other scenes. But I also, I think part of the reason is because it's so recent. It's fairly recent. Um, so, you know, it's this is 40 years ago, 45 years ago. So we're not, um, 
I think we have only recently maybe reached the point of historicizing the 80s or especially the early 80s. Um, I also think that the DIY nature of the scene that Emily and Pat have been talking about, um, this sort of reticence to embrace media exposure or bring media in to this subculture um, is part of the reason why it's not sort of already an institutionalized history. Um, it just, I think, from my understanding, lived underground. And so it's been there for a while. Can you yeah. just, Emily and Pat, how did you feel when you heard NYU wanted your archives for their library? Do you well, remember the moment, Emily? I, well, I totally remember because we had this mountain of videotapes on like seven different formats in Pat's apartment, she had shelves built in her living room for it. And in my apartment, I had an entire closet just filled with videotapes. And, you know, decades went by. And I really thought at one point I would die and my kids would get a dumpster and they would just throw my videotapes into it like I did with my mom's stuff, you know, that nobody wanted. And out of the blue, Marvin Taylor, the curator and the director at the time of the library, who's like a real visionary. And he had established this thing called the Downtown Collection way before that which was to you know archive things from lower Manhattan, from downtown. Much of it originally was like paper, you know, people's notes, people's journals, you know, things that they did. And he was sort of like venturing into video. Um, and in our case, it, it, it was an enormously expensive venture for him to digitize the material. That's why we never, we, there, were, there were tapes we hadn't looked at in 40 years because we did not have the resources to convert them from this like these impossible old tape formats to digital, you know, computer available things. So that was what happened. NYU did it. And um, they were very impressed with how organized we were. Everything was logged and we had like, you know, Excel spreadsheets, some files of everything. So we were the most organized artists that they'd had come in with stuff. And they have a lot of our ephemera and stuff too. And this is not just concert footage. You have some some interviews as yeah. well that you've collected. Richard Lloyd, who founded the band Television, was a regular at CBGB in downtown okay. Manhattan. And let's we we have a part of the interview that you have with him. So let's hear what he has to say about meeting the owner of that club for the first time. We had been talking about trying to find a back some place to play more consistently than like every three once every three months we thought you'll we'll never build a following unless we have unless we would you know woodshed in our own place so let's everybody will go out and we'll, we'll look for some sort of dive that, where we can go in and sort of muscle our way to be you know top dog where we can actually build a following so one day Tom came to rehearsal and he said, I saw a guy putting up an awning and I think it's a bar that's going to have live music. Would somebody come with me? And I said, fine, I'll go. And the next day we went and, and literally that was Hilly was up putting up his awning of CBGB's own folk. And we asked him what he was going to do with the place. And he said, you know, it's going to be a bar with live music. We said, what kind of music are you going to have? And we had this conversation. He said, you know, country, bluegrass, and blues. And we were desperate, so we said, well, we play some of that. <laughs> Richard Lloyd, who founded the band Television, they became regulars at CBGB in downtown Manhattan. That was his 
description of meeting the the owner of it for the first time, Pat Ivers. Who who was the band Television for people who aren't familiar? Oh, they were they were the first band I ever saw from the scene in 1974. I saw them uh, at Max's uh, playing on a double bill with Patti Smith. And uh, Emily and I used to live, before we met, we lived on East 10th Street between 1st and 2nd. And I lived on one end, Emily lived on the other end, and Patti Smith lived in the middle. And we used to see her all the time sitting on her, uh, her stoop. And I know who she was. She was like already, you know, a famous poet. But, uh, you know, she was a little on the scary side at the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I was very smitten with the idea of seeing her play rock and roll. And so I saw her and television play at, at Max's. And then they did like a month at CBGB's. And uh, that really sort of consolidated the club as a place for new music. Yeah. What did the AIDS epidemic do to this kind of era, the culture, the community, the era? Emily Armstrong? Well, we lost a lot of close friends early on, and people that got AIDS early on died horrible deaths because there were no medication for it. You know, they called it gay cancer in the beginning. And and that was a, 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 like a real nexus of a, commu- a creative community. So to lose so many people who had such amazing futures ahead of them was really heartbreaking. And to see people go in such horrible ways, you know, so um, it was really a bummer, you know, I, I mean, not to, you know, sound trite, but it, it changed a lot people's heads. There was a certain amount of depression, I think about it. And it just got worse and worse until they figured some way out to treat it. But the city had, got, you know, there were like, you know, on-premises sex clubs, there were, you know, amazing gay clubs like the anvil that had djs and dancing upstairs and like you know we know i never you know girls couldn't go downstairs but you know there was a lot of activity downstairs and people say i saw your friend last night he was on the rack you know on the anvil you know but um it caught up caught up with people you know and then it you know it was certain amount of intravenous intravenous drug use and i think some people crossed over into the aids with that but um it was a terrible time it was a terrible plague Pat Ivers, what do you remember about starting to realize the breadth of AIDS in the community? I was uh, I was on the beach with uh, my friend who was the assistant manager at Dancateria, and he was reading an article in the New York Times about gay cancer. And I said, "Oh, you know, you don't have gay cancer. That's ridiculous. You're you're so neurotic." And, uh, of course, he was the first person that I knew who, who had AIDS. And, um, you know, it just tears your heart out, uh, you know. You know, of all of the boys that we worked with at Danceteria, well over, I'd say, 70% of them passed from AIDS. Yeah, definitely. And, 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 you know, I mean, talk about the best and the brightest, you know, Keith Haring, um, we said before David Wanarovich, who just was, uh, he just had a big show at the Whitney a couple of years ago. You know, these were just brilliant people and uh, they were just cut down before they were even 40. It's just, you know, impossible to uh, ever feel good about. But, uh, you know, I'm just glad that they they found 
ways of dealing with it now. But it was uh, it was just a terrible. You hated to read the paper, yeah, because you never knew who was going to show up in it. Yeah, Rachel Pittman, you you've it's it's a very different thing. But the COVID nineteen pandemic affected your sense of community and and kind of reinforced how important community is to you in your generation. How does that make you want to build community now? I think that um, the COVID-19 pandemic affected people, really wide swaths of people, like everyone on earth, um, (laughs) whether they acknowledge it or not. And I think that for me, I was in my 20s and I previously had been pretty involved in, um, you know, the underground art scene where I went to college, where I went to undergrad. Um, And then things just kind of stopped and came to a halt in 2020. So, like, I used to work for a really great film festival I really believed in, and now the film festival doesn't exist anymore because it stopped due to COVID, and then, you know, funding matters happen, and it never really gets started back up. So I think that COVID-19 was an eye-opener for a lot of people, and I'm not unique in it being an eye-opener for me, but it definitely wants, I definitely want to build community back after COVID. And Emily and Pat's story, I think, inspires me in a way. and that is this edition of Coastline Pat Ivers, Emily Armstrong, and Rachel Pittman. Thank you all so much for being with us today. Thank you, it was Thank you for having us. Good, good questions. Thank you. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Fernell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. Continue the conversation with us on Facebook. Find us at WHQR's Coastline hosted by, or just send an email to coastline at whqr.org. You can find the episode along with resources at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.